Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about Crux, a new open source database with Jeremy Taylor and Malcolm Sparks from Juxt. Jeremy is Juxt's offering manager for Crux, and Malcolm is Juxt's technical director. Welcome to the show, Jeremy and Malcolm. Hi, thank you. Hey, Daniel. Good to be here. Hey, so Jux has recently released Crux at about a week or two ago at the Closure North conference. Uh, but for people who weren't at that conference, can you tell us what is Crux? What's the elevator pitch? Okay, so uh, the elevator pitch for Crux is quite simple. It's a document database, but it's a document database with bitemporal graph queries. And from a technical perspective, it's interesting because it's unbundled. And that means we've built it out of sort of some very simple components so that you can configure it and plug and play different storage technologies. So when John got up on stage on, on the 19th at Closure North, uh, he had these wonderful set of diagrams. A few of them are in the docs. The rest will be unveiled uh, in due course. But essentially, the, the architecture runs primarily on Kafka, where all these Crux nodes can coordinate around a central Kafka log. And you have the indexes for, for the Crux nodes stored in either LevelDB or RocksDB. And those indexes give bitemporal lookups. So that's sort of a, a point in time query across transaction time and, and valid time, but also with the, the power of data log to do these sort of recursive graphs and, and rules. So um, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a very brief overview and I'm sure we'll unpack that. Great. Yeah, there's a few terms in there which may not be familiar to people, which yeah, we want to get into. I think it's there's some very interesting ideas and certainly a lot of it was not you know, familiar to me. At least some of the concepts that you've unbundled were, you know, I guess, new to me or they were presented in a new way. So yeah, definitely keen to get into that. Before we go too much further, I, I just want to have some disclosure that I was involved in the preview period for Crux. So I've been sort of aware of it for a while now, certainly longer than a few weeks. Uh, so I've been thinking about it for a while. And also there's a, as you mentioned, there was the talk at uh, Closure North and I saw you were also on the Defin podcast and I haven't, well, I don't think either of them are out, you know, publicly yet. So I haven't had the chance to, to watch either of them. So if you know on the podcast, I sound like I'm, you know, why didn't he just watch the talk? And that would have been like the first thing that uh, was talked about on the talk. You know, that's why, because the talk video is still coming out maybe later this month or that's right you know, in, a, in a few weeks. So maybe we can start off with what's probably the most important feature. It's certainly the one you highlight the most, which is bi-temporality. So can you sort of talk about, you know, bi-temporality? What is it? Why should I care about it? Yeah, of course. So I think the evolution of the way we store data is quite interesting. You know, 20, 30 years ago, hard disk was so small that we needed to do this you know, update in place model. You know, we, we just we couldn't afford to have endless copies of the same information. We couldn't afford to store versions since the beginning of time. But in recent years, it's, you know, it's become commonplace to build these huge data lakes and to store data just you know, without real thought to how many terabytes the, the databases grow to. And obviously, in the last so 10 years, the cloud has sort of exponentially increased this, this possibility. So the idea of suddenly being able to track all your data temporarily, you know, across a timeline suddenly becomes quite attractive because, you know, it means you're never losing information. And of course, in, in certain other ways, logging your database transactions sort of gives you this. But, you know, we've seen a, a sort of resurgence of, of uh, sort of a, a temporal database formula. So the, the SQL 2011 standard um, provided these new temporal semantics for, for SQL and of course, Datomic has uh, pioneered uh, in the Closure community, but also more generally with this quite powerful use of transaction time, which gives you these time travel query possibilities. So that's that's really exciting and very powerful. But what we've done with Crux is to open up a, another time dimension. So transaction time records the time that information that data, you know, the facts enter the database. But what's usually quite interesting to run your sort of business level queries is the time that those facts were actually valid in the modeled reality. So you're not necessarily wanting to, to know about when the fact entered the database, you actually want to query against or when did that thing actually occur along a, a given timeline. So valid time gives you this extra timeline. And so by having transaction time and valid time, we, we call this by temporality. And it's quite an old concept. You know, people have been studying this stuff for 30 years, 40 years, even um, in the database literature. But practically speaking, it's not been feasible to make this a, a common capability until very recently. So we think this is sort of a, a ripe time for talking about this new capability. And um, yeah, we think valid time adds a very powerful dimension for, for running these uh, very interesting business business level queries. Yeah. So valid time, maybe people know it as business time or you know, there's a few other sort of names, but 
it would be sort of the time at the domain level rather than the time at the the physical transaction level. Yeah, well, this is interesting actually. So if you if you keep reading the literature, you know, yeah, there are other sorts of names for, for these different times, and actually, valid time was the one that captured sort of the minimum level of broader meaning. So 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 valid time is very specific about well, it's when the fact was modeled in in the given reality, but it doesn't necessarily say what kind of fact that is. So there are other kinds of timelines you might want to model, yeah, which would be like domain times or decision times, but all of those sort of other dimensionalities of time would still have underlying a, a transaction time and a valid time. So this bi-temporality is like the foundation for modeling these additional dimensions, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, can we have tri-temporal time, which it sounds like you could well, at least build it on top of a bi-temporal database. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. So in any sort of higher level modeling, you need at minimum these two dimensions to be sort of built into the foundation. And yeah, and then you sort of open yourself up to all kinds of you know, really interesting stuff. And and we can sort of talk more about, well, what, what does a bitemporal query actually mean? How does that work? And um, and certainly there's there's a whole load of implications. If you, you know, if you type in bitemporal database in, into Google, you, you'll come up with loads of very interesting kinds of queries you can run. And actually Crux only targets currently like a very niche, uh, sort, sort of small niche within that space. But yeah, the, the more indexing you do, the more dimensions you open up, of course, you can uh, do more sort of uh, crazy things. But but we think this this, this valid time you know, decomplexing valid time from transaction time is like the, the first necessary step for making the use of the time dimensions actually practical and useful. Yeah, that's really good. I was reading the documentation and when it talked about sort of what is the transaction time for and what is the valid time for, it said, you know, transaction time for separate uh, time used for audit purposes and technical requirements such as event sourcing and the valid time is used for querying data across time and historical analysis. And I thought that was a really crisp way of delineating the two. So I've used uh, Datomic before, and I'm sort of familiar with the difficulty of having only you know a single timeline. And so I guess the advice that we got when we were looking at this was that if we wanted to model like a domain time and or you know something that's valuable to the business, then we should just store it as you know model it as its own entity or you know its own attribute in the data layer rather than it being sort of built into the underlying sort of transaction time. So. You know, why is it important to model, you know, store a valid time and a transaction time as a sort of core parts of the database? Why couldn't we just layer on valid time to, say, Datomic and get to the same place as you are here? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think it's actually kind of similar to sort of saying, well, you know, do I need to use persistent data structures in my programming language to make it, you know, nice to do functional programming? It's like in order to get the benefits of doing these as of, as at queries and these bitemporal queries. And to do that efficiently, you really do need the, the index for valid time to be sort of built into the structure. Otherwise, you're paying a, quite a heavy tax every time you run these queries. So, you know, maybe for certain limited use cases, that's that's a, sort of an acceptable trade-off. And maybe you can do like a sort of fully secondary valid time index. But if you want it to be performant and scalable, you really do have to think uh, more natively and, and build that valid time understanding into the basic index. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So what's the, sort of the, the background or origin to Crux? You know, you didn't just sort of decide to do this for no reason. You know, it's clearly a lot of work you've put in. I'm not sure how many resources, but at least several people's work over quite a long period of time. So, you know, this is expensive, especially for a consultancy like yourself, where your, you know, billable hours is usually king in consultancies. Maybe it's not in Jux, but every other consultancy I've worked with or worked for that's been important. So why go to all this effort? What's the background for this? It's a really good question. I think we've all, since Jux was founded, we've had a, a strong background in open source and we've we've often reflected on projects and created open source libraries. I think one of the projects that we had early on was a one called On the Market, which was to build a property portal. And from that project, we, we created a few libraries like Joplin and Yada. And it's that period of kind of that ability to be in the trenches and to be on projects big and small and to kind of read the pulse of what you know what would you have liked to have had from tools and libraries if you had started the project again and over the years Juxta's emerged kind of stack which was more you know around the web and we used front-end libraries such as reframe and reagent and you know we're, we're big users of other community projects but there was a kind of recognition i think and that we we didn't really 
have a good solid story when it came to the data back end and particularly around some of the requirements that we we had from clients around i think you know in the, in the financial domain by temporality did come up a few times also compliance and um, the ability to evict data which we'll come to la- uh, later on but th- we we began to feel that we needed to have a better data story particularly that closure is such a data-oriented language. We have projects that use Postgres and Datomic and you know um, other databases like Cassandra and Elasticsearch. But you know, and it wasn't really a kind of obvious choice. But it was just one of those things that you know John kind of came up with as an idea. And you know, he was very very keen on the idea and he thought it would work. And I was keen to support him. So we kind of just you know started. From uh, you know, from first principles, working out what would we want to see in a database, and it started from there, and then it kind of mushroomed. So it wasn't really, I mean, it was planned, but it, it kind of the way it all turned out. I think it, it came out really well. It was a, it was a really good time in the company's history uh, to take this on, and you know, we we got a lot of experience from various projects, and we wanted to see what we could do. Great, and I guess you've you know implemented projects with Datomic and Postgres and Cassandra. And so I guess were there sort of pain points? Yeah, what were some of the things that you thought, yeah, if we were going to build a database from scratch, what would it have in it? What were some of those things for you? Yeah, I think, I mean, we're very much, I mean, the way I see the world, I mean, from the beginning of my career, I see that people have come about with different kind of conceptual frameworks for thinking about computation, thinking about data. And thinking about storage and computers really have mostly one job and that is to encode data and to move data around in copies um, and that's kind of how we build applications and so there's kind of three different tribes emerge from that you know in my world anyway my understanding and that's kind of been the object world which is around object-oriented languages uh, technologies like Corba and com and that world where you're really keeping data in one place and you're sending messages between objects in a, a potentially over a network. And then you have this other world, which is the tables, world, the world of the tables, the world of databases, relational databases, which and Excel, where everything is grid-like and data is open. You can see it all and you're doing computations on, the, on that data, but you're transferring data via tables. And then this sort of pattern of kind of the document model, which was, I think, kind of started off with, in the late 80s with SGML and which became XML, but then, you know, was really kind of exploded onto the kind of application programming scene with the web, which is really kind of the, you know, exchange of documents. And JSON from, you know, kind of the fires of XML has kind of become that predominant uh, way that people think about exchanging documents. And, you know, the JSON document has become the lingua franca of the web now. I mean, almost every API that we come across is exchanging JSON documents, which is incredible, really, because, you know, love it or hate it, JSON is kind of very, very close in its conception with collections and, and maps to how we see the world as closure programmers. We just love that kind of ability to encode data, literal, literal syntax to data, to being able to read and write it, slurp and spit it in closure programs. So... This this kind of document model has, has kind of really, you know, I think it was something we're really, really attracted to. And then this, you know, how, how quickly can you uh, write an application and persist data? I mean, it should be possible, as it is in Clojure, to read quite a complex data document in one line of code. And it is, because you can, you can just slurp it in. And so we've seen the friction that has happened with, in object orientation and having to write to the relational world, the table world of the tables and object relational mapping, all of the work that happens to have to try and get rid of that friction. And then we've seen um, how difficult it is to, if you've ever tried to read an XML document into an object oriented language like C sharp or Java, where you've had to spend weeks writing XML deserialized. <laughs> friction there so things things really should happen be much much easier and be one line of code away and i think that's what we kind of i really like about Elasticsearch. that you just you have a document or mongodb for example you just say yeah that's it submit that that is my document i want you to persist it 
So I think that, that that's a real hallmark of crux, being able to exchange documents and, and be able to say, you know, just to, to think of, of data as, as, as documents. And those documents can evolve and they can be different. And we don't know what the scheme of those documents are ahead of time on day one. In fact, the knowledge of your domain is something that you know grows as you understand, begin exploring and understanding that domain. You you don't know the domain on day one, and yet so many databases insist that you you give it a, a very articulate presentation of your schema before you begin to do anything. So I think that that's been that's been a kind of I guess as practitioners something that we wanted in a database, a sort of elastic search capability of being able to pop data documents into a database but at the same time we really love data log and that's been an epiphany for all of us and we just think you know the ability to query in terms of a document's relationships with other documents or, or, or is um, incredibly useful and to be able to you know query with that um, ability with that, that amount of expressiveness is something that we don't want to lose and something that, that you do lose with many key value stores so yeah, not, that that was really the, the the thing. Let's let's create a document database that has bitemporality, that has the 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 kind of things that we need for compliance, for you know evicting documents and to only retaining data when we need it. Um, and also, let's not throw away the you know the wonderful thing that is data log and relational calculus. Right. Uh, so. This is probably one of the things that I had the hardest time with with Crux was just sort of building up a mental model of like, what is this? Because there's like there's a document database, so you, it's sort of like you know you might start thinking MongoDB when you start thinking about documents, but that's you know as you mentioned, there's you know a very rich query language which queries you know between and across documents and you know the, the relationships between them. So that's you know only a partial view. Then you sort of think of maybe well Datomic, but then Datomic is not a document database, and you know there's quite some very big differences between Datomic's architecture and and Crux's. The last thing is that there's also this sort of transaction log and history going on. So there's sort of different pieces, and that was one of the things I took the longest to sort of realize how to sort of just conceptualize it. So what have you found? How's how do you explain? the you know past the elevator pitch when people are interested how do they build a mental model for this sure yeah so i mean obviously a, a picture does tell a thousand words so i definitely recommend checking out the docs but <laughs> the, i think the transaction log is actually the best place to start you know that that's that really is the core of the architecture and uh, because we're sort of very pluggable around bundled the transaction log actually can live in different places so it could either be sort of locally in like an, an embedded model so this whole crux thing can run like a, a, a sqlite so yeah, you know you can run it at a very small scale, but when you do want to scale to you know service uh, large requirements, uh, you can use Kafka. So Kafka operating operating as that transaction log actually works quite well. It's got very sort of natural alignment, and, and the idea is with the transaction log is you retain everything. So what are the transactions? Well, you've got four transactions going into Crux. You got um, you got put, you've got uh, delete, you've got evict, and you've got um, CAS. And between those four types of transactions. Like those are the only ways that data in uh, Crux mutates. And so what happens is what you're actually putting on the transaction log is, uh, well, first of all, one of those four operations plus a hash of a document. And then the document is actually stored on a document log, which is potentially also in Kafka and in the default setup. So you have these two logs at the core, so Kafka and uh, document log and the, and the transaction log. And essentially, when you put a document on the document log, the transaction gets on the transaction log and then the crux indexer which could be local to these logs or it could be on a, a remote machine and you could have many crux nodes at once they're all listening to the transaction log and they they, they take the document that's on the document log they perform whatever transaction is described on the transaction log and they update their local indexes and so as part of those indexes they pull apart the documents so the top level fields from all those documents get indexed into aev and ave indexes uh but with all the sort of bi-temporal stuff as well sure do you just want to um, mention what cas is and what uh, ave you know those indexes are because some people may not have come across those terms yeah sorry so sure so, so cas is compare and swap so it's um it's just a, a very primitive way of managing sort of uh, uh contention in what, what's going on in the database so cas makes sure that uh, when you 
make a transaction that if the state of the database isn't what you think it's supposed to be, whilst that transaction is being processed, because obviously there's a delay between sending the transaction and the transaction executing, if, if that CAS operation detects that something's different and wasn't what it was expecting, it'll just abort. And that, that's a like a fundamental primitive to be able to then do more sophisticated sort of uh, coordination between multiple nodes. So that, that's CAS. And then uh, EAV, so, so uh, triples, obviously, the model which Datomic's built on. So I'd say, obviously, the Datomic used this triple model, which itself borrowed from sort of RDF, this um, you know, more sort of generic uh, technology. But this general idea of storing entity attribute values is good and solid. But in Crux, uh, what we do is we store two times two types of indexes to cover the two different paths across all of the attributes. So basically, all documents index all of their attributes, regardless of what type of attribute they are. Uh, and, and they're all potentially usable as, as reference attributes, which means you can traverse those attributes in both directions between the documents. So that's how the, the data log engine works. Um, so you're not declaring a schema up front. You're able to write your data log and do really ad hoc um, traversals of your documents. And then the bi-temporal aspect is, you know, as, as well as indexing each of these um, these, these attribute and values uh, combinations for the documents, which at this point are turned into entities. So there's a sort of a one-to-one correlation between document and entity. Um, you, you, you're then able to, to do an, like an as-of query, uh, but also an as-at query. So, you know, you can take a, your, your connection to Crux and add a valid time and a transaction time that you want to query against and you still get your database as a value, which is you know, very helpful for writing good, nice functional code. And so all of this is going across on each Crux node, which essentially is like a datomic peer. But unlike a datomic peer, it's not you know, lazily retrieving um, things from a, some sort of central storage. The only information that's that's going into these nodes is uh, the document log and the transaction log. And there is no coordination between the nodes. So all these Crux nodes are sort of heavyweight. They're, they're storing all of the indexes locally, and they're storing all of the documents within that Crux system. So the nodes are, are very... Um, independent and autonomous right and they're, they're just just coordinating through that transaction log so there's a transaction log which is you know let's say it's kafka i think that's the main main way people would use it at the moment and that's you know sort of one central kafka log and then there's these crux nodes and they can be embedded within your application as you know a relatively heavyweight library i guess that's doing the the indexing and the querying in the same process as the rest of your Clojure or Java application. Yeah, that's right. So it is that sort of library model. However, we do have a, an HTTP API as well. So you could also theoretically, uh, or you could actually um, take these Crux nodes and use the out-of-the-box sort of HTTP interface. You might want to tweak it and constrain it in some ways, but and then put all those behind a load balancer and use Crux sort of purely remotely so you don't have to directly use Clojure. Uh, but we have a Java API as well. Right. Uh, and so that's, you could have sort of a more traditional, like, you know, the, the database is over there, the, the application processes are over here, and they just talk to each other through, you know, in this case, HTTP. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, then suddenly you're sort of more likely to have a, uh, your serverless application runtimes, you know, they don't need to have these crux nodes sort of embedded within them. Um, you can have something much more lightweight in your architecture. Yeah, that was one of the things I was going to ask about was, you know, serverless is, you know, pretty popular at the moment. And, you know, if you're going to design a database in 2019 or 2018, maybe 2017, I think when you started, but, you know, it seems like Crux will be, works with that paradigm too. Yeah, I, I certainly think so. I mean, Crux is, is built to run, you know, in whatever kind of environment you want, but, you know, we have some Kubernetes scripts, you know, we, we understand how it works in that kind of environment. And you know, if you had some serverless thing in your in your cloud of choice, uh, you could definitely point at that. And because of its uh, architecture, you get this horizontal read scaling, which is obviously like a really important thing for serverless to do to, to be matching the uh, the demand. So yeah, it's, it's a very sort of natural modern cloud architecture. Yeah. So do you want to maybe talk a little bit about you know, Datomic's probably the most familiar thing people have to for you know bitemporal querying, uh, certainly for closure people. So do you want to sort of talk about sort of the differences between it? I've got a few notes of things I noticed that were similar and hopefully I am correctly identifying the similarities and differences. But um, in Crux, the IDs are, you know, that the primary key or primary ID is user controllable, whereas in Datomic, there's an entity ID 
which is sort of your main weather, the most important internal ID for you know for indexing and things. Datomic and Crux both have this duality between a connection, which is this stateful connection to you know, the document store and submitting transactions, and then you can take a value of that connection and get a database as of a particular point in time. They both have that. And one quite key difference to me seemed to be uh, that Crux, you update a whole document at a time. You don't, there's no sort of partial writes to the database, which then get coalesced you know, at read time. You have to, at write time, you need to resubmit the full document if you want to update a single field. The last thing I noticed was, uh, which kind of comes back to the schemaless point, is that you can reference entities which don't exist in the database yet. When you write a transaction and put something in there, you can put it. You can put a yeah in, in a reference to another ID, but that ID doesn't have to exist now, and it may you know it may never exist in the database. But that's just fine with Crux. So, are there are there other things? You know, how do you see? the similarities and differences there. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's, that's an interesting summary. I can sort of address a, a couple of those. I, I think the first one, certainly uh, the idea that Crux is document-oriented, it, it uses the ideas from within the document. It's sort of a very important concept. And, and same with valid time. You know, that's, the, the, the valid time is something that's usually sort of embedded with the document you get from an upstream system. So the whole point is that with Crux, we start with the, the information that's given to you. you know, you're not trying to invent um uh, you know, extra IDs, extra um, times, uh, and, and use those. So Crux starts with that document foundation. And there are implications, as you just correctly pointed out, around, well, okay, if you're going to update the document, you have to resubmit the, in, the entire document. Um, and so currently the API actually is quite manual to do that. But um, as as we sort of expand the, uh, the library around Crux, um, that should be sort of a little bit nicer. And yeah, you, you mentioned about the, the reference types because, because you're not declaring reference types, uh, essentially data log can traverse any attribute. So you're not precluded from that. And I guess it's, it could be a dangerous thing. So, you know, you still have to, you know, be, be mindful of the way you write queries and, you know, make sure you have the, the right attribute values, um, or the, the, the labels, the names are matching up. But, you know, essentially it gives you that flexibility to make, to defer the, the decisions about exactly which attributes are interesting to traverse, especially as information arrives out of order. You know, you're, you're able to sync up not only in terms of valid time, but then also in terms of the IDs that uh, reference between documents. So um, Crux is really born out of this environment where, you know, it's not trying to be the master of data. It's trying to accept information from upstream systems and then allow you to query that in a sensible way. But it also could be the master of the data if you wanted it to be. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's got the right ingredients to be a good master of data. And that's certainly... The main reason we built it is because we wanted to, to build something to satisfy our own needs. So yeah, it is absolutely a database, a good uh, OLTP system, but it also has that that rich sort of um, almost almost like data warehousing capabilities to just be a, a good corporate citizen and uh, or a sort of integration point. Great. So I guess you could maybe imagine if you had you know, in an enterprise, you know, five different systems across the business all doing different things and you wanted to somehow integrate them into one application which needed to get you know bits from all five you could use crux to be that integration point to you know, just feed in from all of the systems and you can then query against them in one place would that work yeah that's exactly the the sort of uh, kind of use case so that crux was envisioned around so you know the idea of having uh, multiple systems each of which you know have their own versions of time crux is trying to give a a consolidated view so that when you do those reports at the end of the day that you can you can say well this is the time like information was valid across all these different systems which are feeding into crux but then you're still not precluded from saying oh wait there was, there was a mistake there oh, here's more data which we didn't realize we had you know because some connection was down and, and it just gives you that visibility across multiple enterprise systems which means it's yeah it's an ideal integration technology as well as a, a sort of master system so you know, we've sort of talked about the application level benefits of, you know, why you'd want to use Crux, but what about things that are, you know, at a higher level, legal or business value or compliance? Can you talk a little bit about what's the state of the world with that today and how Crux can help? Yeah, I, I can mention a few words on that. And um, one of the kind of, um, when, when Crux was born, we were in the middle of a number of projects all around trying to 
many of our projects had to be um, compliant with the PCI DSS regime, which is about you know a, a very strong regulatory regime about storing credit card numbers. We were kind of exposed to lots and lots of compliance concerns around that. We went through a PCI DSS audit and it was um, quite onerous. We had to provide lots of documentation and evidence. And, you know, we realized that in this world that the importance of building a, a privacy in, in and compliance into the database core. And, in, and now I have to stress that Crux at the moment is a kind of, as we call it, an unbundled database. It is... Uh, open source for a reason because it is a, a set of building blocks and we're very precious about the core because we want to be able to build very innovative things outside the core and without compromising the core but the core has to have the building blocks the you know the four transaction types as as jeremy's mentioned and it has to have the features within the core that allows you to build systems that are able to to meet compliance concerns you know one for example is the the evict transaction type so the regulatory regimes that we're finding ourselves building systems within are very much around uh, user privacy and around ensuring that every data that you, or all the data that you possess and you retain, uh, you have to then have re- a, a reasonable justification for storing that data. And when you no longer have that justification, you should delete the data. The justification should be a business purpose. And that when, when that purpose is fulfilled, then the onus is on you as an organization to make sure that you scrub your systems of that data. Now, building that those kind of systems today is really hard with databases that are kind of born out of the, the early 90s, where the only reason for the deleting data was to reclaim some disk space. And so now we're, we're moving to a world where it's incredibly important to store metadata. So not only uh, storing data, but understanding why you're storing data, for whose data is it, which business purpose you're processing that data for, and how long you should retain that data, and so on. So this is the uh, the new world. So Crux is about providing the building blocks, open source, so that they can be reconstituted in various ways. And we're seeing this as a kind of very multi-layered database where we might put forward the layer zero that other people would take that and take those components and you know produce layers on top of crux in order to produce very kind of compelling uh, other types of database for different domains great so if crux is schemaless and you can put whatever kind of document basically as long as it's validated and it'll be accepted into crux how do you sort of build anything you know comprehensible on top of that do you envisage people sort of putting some sort of layer on top of crux with some sort of schema there or is it you know schema on read or you know what are the different ways people can think about you know maintaining some sort of sense of control over top of you know, a schemaless database like this yeah i mean the, the, there are different ways of doing schema as we know and and um it's quite exciting to see you know the different approaches one approach i've been looking at is json schema because json schema is a a very exciting set of specifications that are is maturing pretty fast is very very popular has has lots of people working on it it seems to be stabilizing this year i think it's it's in draft at the moment but it will be towards the end of the year they're looking to bring out as a an official rfc the interesting thing about json schema is that it it has so many different applications, not just kind of validators, but there are things out there that can generate UIs based on schema. And it's it's incredibly dynamic and, and based on all the JSON tooling that you have in the browser and, and it's very JS native. So I've been experimenting with writing, uh, so Crux doesn't have a pull syntax, which is just something we didn't build and you know, wasn't considered to be core. But I've been experimenting with using JSON schema as the pull syntax because JSON schema is ah. a language where you can say, well, these are the attributes I require. These are the, you know, these are the properties I require. These are the optional properties, and you know, these properties I need more than one of, and I, I, this has to be an array, and I need to make sure that they, you know, I, I want it. Um, and and so you can you can almost create a JSON schema that is a recipe for the or you know a, a shape for valid JSON documents. So you can define what a valid JSON document is through a JSON schema, then present the JSON schema to Crux, and then that can be compiled into a data log query that can then query out 
and the results from that can be then recast into JSON documents. So JSON schema itself it can become a optional pool syntax. And it's not the only pool syntax. It doesn't have to be the crux pool syntax, but it is a, an example of how you can build such things based on the underlying components of crux. Yeah, I think another good example of that kind of thing is um, like aggregation. So, so right now the data log API isn't completely fleshed out with everything you might want to do. So things like aggregation are layers you can write on top of Crux. And so we have a sort of a candidate in the repo for that right now. But arguably these these kinds of opinionated things that you build on top of Crux really are the community can, can iterate on these things and, and you know, make decisions for themselves about what uh, exactly what, what sort of interface they want for Crux to make it useful for them. Right. On that sort of unbundled small core with you know layers on top, I was looking at the design page and it was quite nice to sort of see you know, there's closure protocols for the object store and the key value store and the transaction log and the indexer. And, you know, there's multiple implementations of some of these things already for, you know, in-memory versus RocksDB or LMDB. And so it really does seem like from the start, if I wanted to, you know, let's say I had, you know, like Cassandra, say, you know, I had my operations team had, you know, real strength with Cassandra. The edict was, you know, Cassandra for everything we do in the company that you could potentially build, you know, implement the key value store on top of Cassandra and maybe even the transaction log on top of Cassandra and still get to use, you know, the the crux query and database system. I don't know if maybe Cassandra is missing some particular features here, but, you know, it, take that for you know, some other database which isn't you know part of this yeah i mean that, 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 yeah it's a, i mean it is it is all protocols as you've guessed and and uh, there are you know the, there are plenty of protocols that define extension points and and one example is that we even you know the first version of crux was heavily using kafka for the transaction log and rocksdb for the document log uh, or the document store we felt that having to set up Kafka for, you know, from people who wanted to trial Crux and play around with it, the, the requirement to have to set up Kafka or even run an embedded Kafka, which we, we support, was kind of onerous. And we, we said, well, w- would it be possible to just be able to build a, a transaction log within RocksDB? And so, yeah, no, that was very straightforward because of the protocol nature of Crux. But I mean, that's not our invention, lots of other products, including Datomic, have, have re, you know, exploited the power of closure protocols to achieve that. Yeah, I, I guess um, you know, when people first hear about Crux and they hear about Kafka and all of these you know, database bits and pieces that are attached to Crux, it might sound a little bit, a little bit scary, but you can you know, get up and running just in a ripple in memory and do everything without needing a full Kafka system on day one, minute one. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you can, you can run with a single JVM and, you know, that's the mode that I run it on when I'm doing my kind of experimental crux stuff and hacking. But it, it, it will uh, scale up to, you know, full, full-blown Kafka streaming system. Great. And so we sort of touched on this a little bit at the very start, but, you know, why build a database? You know, there's lots of stuff out there and yeah maybe there wasn't like something that fitted perfectly for Juxt, but at the same time like building a database is an enormous investment of of time and building it to be reliable as we've seen with with gypsum tests is uh difficult and you know can be very subtle so why do that and the jux team doesn't feel like sort of people that just sort of throw something out there and then well okay whatever like you know if people use it cool if people don't whatever you know and it's just a an abandoned thing it seems pretty deliberate that you've thought about it's not sort of meant to be abandoned where you know after this initial release it's my impression anyway so my my entire purpose at, at juxt um is crux um so i sort of first heard about crux probably seven or eight months ago but it was quite clear to me that this was a, something juxt were really serious about as an open source product and that sort of attracted me personally because uh I, my my background's in sort of technical sales and big enterprise it stuff at ibm and uh the natural progression from technical sales to, to product management is very strong. My sort of uh, uh, capabilities seem to be a very good fit for what Juxt, uh, I think, needed at the time. And, and you know, the fruits of that are sort of born now. So so my my role really is to turn Juxt into, well, Juxt will, will still be a consultancy for sure, but uh, to you know, st- step our toes into um, 
you know, this sort of product space. And, and that's quite a big transition, I think, for, for Juxt. And, uh, you know, Crocs obviously still very young, but uh, I think we're, we're sort of, yeah, trying to establish exactly what, what this bi-temporal space looks like uh, from a market perspective. And, and you know, there's, there's clearly a lot of uh, world and IT things going on outside of closure. So, you know, we're, we're looking very broadly uh, at the kinds of problems this, this solves. And um, certainly there's no shortage of um, use cases and, and other technologies that try and do this sort of stuff, but ultimately aren't, aren't ticking all the boxes. So, you know, I think for me personally, you know, Crux is a, an immensely exciting thing not just for closure, but yeah, more, more generally as well, because it, it is really sort of bringing bi-temporality to the masses. And I think, you know, that, that word right now, it's, a, it's, it's quite a niche word, but it has a lot of impact. And I think it could really transform the way we uh, generally build systems. But uh, I'll pass over to Malcolm, because I'm sure he wants to say a few things. Yeah, I mean, Jux is a company that takes really long bets and has a really long-term vision on stuff. And for us, our choice of closure as a language was made you know, in order to pick a language that we, we felt was going to be evolve relatively slowly was based on Lisp, which is 60 years old. And, you know, it was about uh, making choices that would still be valid in 10, 15, 20 years time. And, you know, that's in the context of, you know, many companies today and startups and core companies are building stuff really, really quickly. And the, you know, the the emphasis is to sell or to exit or to you know, sell a company as soon as possible, you know, to build stuff really, really quickly. And and that's not what we're about in Jux. So we're quite happy making long-term bets and investing in things really slowly and, and to keep things going and to mature them. And and, um, uh, and and that's the sort of value of the company that we, you know, that, that um, isn't just applied to the technologies, but to career development and to investing in people. So we're a very kind of slow, conservative company. And, and so we're looking at this as a, a very, very long-term investment that we will invest year on year and see where it goes. But, you know, we can't do it on our own. We, you know, the, the um, open source nature of Crux is, is not just because we're kind of open source champions, but you know, not just that, you know, the very success of the product is predicated on the on other people joining in and, and contributing to it so we um we see open source as a you know very important thing for long term for other people to un- you know, understand your products and to to be able to hack on them and, uh, and that's uh, supremely important so you know i'd say crux is something that we will continually in- innovate on for many many years but it's not going to be kind of um a very, very quick flash in a pan or at least i'm i'm, I'm very confident it won't be I'm sure Jeremy's hoping it won't be as well. <laughs> well, I must say we, we've not mentioned Hawken on the on the on the podcast yet, but uh, Hawken uh, Rayberg, who's who's the lead lead programmer, he deserves far more credit than I do at this point in time. But uh, it's a, it's a nice little team we have going. Great, and so you know, Juxta's you know, still a business. So, so what are some of the commercial offerings around Crux that you can offer or planning to offer in the future, maybe? Yeah, well, I mean, so we're in alpha currently and really to take us into like a, a confident uh, beta phase, you know, we, we're really looking for some good sort of uh, meaty projects which we can bring Crux to bear. So, you know, maybe that's closure, maybe it's not closure. We're just wanting to really apply Crux in a, in a context where it's uh, almost like an ideal fit, but but equally, you know, it, it could be uh, sort of more tangential. But, you know, we're, I guess wanting to, to do a lot of handholding in these initial sort of projects so if anyone's out there that's thinking of using crux um please do get in touch but uh you know we jux is obviously a consulting company but um yeah, we, we are looking to to do that sort of enterprise support piece so we're you know, busy figuring out exactly uh you know how we manage that support role and in a sort of enterprise level of uh, quality and um availability in the, the, the slas and that sort of thing so we're very keen to mature crux um reasonably quickly but obviously not so quickly that uh you know we, we don't want it uh, and in production, uh, while it's uh, while it's still alpha, uh, if possible. So, um, yeah, we, we just want to be sort of nurturing anyone that's that's wanting to use it. I think also the the general sort of ethos of open source products is that you know if you if you want to use it, um, you know we can we can offer you sort of open source support, you know the, the Red Hat model, but also we can do some sort of managed hosting as well. So that's uh, always an offer and, a, and an option. And ultimately, what we end up producing in you know, our own sort of cloud service, whatever is obviously yeah, to be determined, but we're very interested in seeing, you know, yes, Crux right now does ABC, but 
what can we then do on top of crux and um you know all, all of the stuff that malcolm's mentioned around compliance and data management data security all these features and enterprise level functionality that startups aren't going to need but you know, the place we want to take crux to um, to have all of these possibilities on top of crux is, is really exciting and uh you know, we're, we're hoping to to figure out exactly you know who can help us define those requirements and what they should be as well so um you know crux is definitely a collaborative effort and you know, we, we want to be good stewards of the uh the open source community in this space and, and you know, help Crux, the investment in Crux go in the right direction. So, you know, we're helping solve people's problems. Great. And so you've touched on, uh, you know, that there's a Java, Java API here. Um, and, you know, the documents are in Eden, which is, you know, probably not that familiar to anyone not in the closure land. Did you think about using JSON or JSON plus a few extra types sort of what, what was the thinking about sort of how closure specific this was versus how broad and approachable it would be well i guess it because it's uh it's early days still you know we haven't built out sort of a, a java builder api or um or done sort of a a clean translation from some sort of xml or json interpreter into into eden but uh, and sort of battle tested that but but that's certainly possible and something we'd encourage and right. maybe we'll write something maybe someone will beat us to it but um yeah, we definitely envisage that people will probably resist the, the Eden interfaces uh, just you know, due to sheer inertia of the other of the other options. We are debating it. I mean, it, it is um, you know it's a balance to to strike between trying to keep the core as minimalist as possible and yet ensure that there's kind of no real performance overhead with storing JSON documents, for example, into into Crux. So you know, we're measuring a lot of things. We, we run a lot of benchmark tests and you can see from the test suite, you know, how serious we are about functional performance testing. I think, you know, it, it is something that is being actively internally discussed on our current channels in, in Juxt. Great. So a bit of a, not specifically related to Crux, but I've noticed that Juxt, all of your libraries, or at least most that I'm aware of, are four-letter named libraries you've got biddy yada crux um what, what's the story there i don't know when it ever it, it wasn't ever intentional i mean it was just one of those things that um i think after biddy i noticed that juxt and biddy both had kind of four letter words and so then it became a policy um and i think it's partly because we were a bit of a unit <laughs> so we we have arch linux on our laptops that's kind of the standard you know corporate bill and so being able to type things really quickly is important for us because we're not clicking around with mice so long names are a pain to type at the time so if you look at the unix command lines that you know you have a lot of um, you know short words like ls and said and things so um the ability to type urls quickly is quite convenient and therefore having long romantic names isn't that useful <laughs> so i think the, you know the short stocky kind of anglo-saxon names are quite useful and, and and we've just kind of adopted that i mean you know we've got haven't got a monopoly on four-letter words but they're uh, it's kind of handy that all the projects are four-letter words and it's a playful constraint one of the biggest thing conversations when you know interesting bike shedding conversations that come up when you know we're trying to name our database and uh, we had a number of different candidates i think crux was more named around the fact that crux is a cross, you know, it's an acronym for, for cross, and it's it's the crossing or finding the intersection of uh, two planes, which is kind of a, you know, sort of references what joining um, database tables is about. So it's really about, you know, crux is the, you know, the crossing of in the intersection of different streams, intersection of you know, crossing streams, crossing tables, and uh, crossing of technologies. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, and it's nice to have the, the Juxtax in there as well, although we, we ended up going for a completely different logo. But, um, you know, it wasn't really kind of planned, but uh, we've ended up with that kind of four-letter name thing and, uh, you know, we'll probably keep it. Great. So it sounds like, you know, the roadmap is, you know, somewhat to be determined with the open source community and clients and projects that you get to work on. But is there any sort of, headlining things that are you know in your mind that you think are quite near term that you want to get to uh yeah so right now there's uh there's one document log one transaction log the transaction log has to be on one kafka partition so in order to scale you can't extend the number of um, transaction partitions you can increase the number of uh, document partitions so the document log could, could span multiple partitions 
but you're still having to ingest all of that into each crux node in its entirety. So whilst you're able to do some sharding of the documents in Kafka, you can't then also shard it in the crux node yet. So what we're looking at or thinking about is the sharding story as well, so that you could potentially say, well, this node is related to you know, this subset of your database. So for all queries related to those things, go to this these nodes or you know, here's another node. It's got a different set of uh, sharding. So that's definitely something we're thinking about. That'd be one example. Um, I mean, Malcolm's mentioned the sort of the, the schema stuff we're looking at. Um, we're, we're also building um, a user interface console on top. And there's you know various issues open on GitHub right now. You can go and take a look at what's in the pipeline. But yeah, we, we do have lots of long-term visions and um, certainly my job, I guess, to pull those together and, and yeah, make sure we're building in the right direction. But uh, we think, you know, what's there right now should be um, should be really helpful to people. So um, we're excited to see what people build. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we've been in the trenches for kind of over a year building this stuff. And I think we felt that it was an important point to checkpoint with the community and to go into listening mode, really, and, and see what people are going to see what ideas are out there to how we can take this. So I think it's, it's been quite an effort by those concerned, not me, but, you know, the core crux team who've worked uh, really, really hard and, and, and done an amazing job and to get it to the point where we could really sit in Closure North. And, and now I think we're taking a bit of a breather. We're going to uh, regroup and bring kind of design board of various people in the community to come and, uh, you know, have a future perspective and work out what the roadmap should be. But um, there is still plenty of issues that we're working through. So it's not like we're, we're downing tools. There's plenty of things that we're getting on with. But as Jeremy says, we, you know, we're, we're looking to build quite an extensive roadmap for the next uh, you know, two or three times, two or three years uh, time. Great. Yeah. So people can find more about Crux at juxt.pro slash Crux. And yeah, I'm you know, excited to see what you know the community thinks about Crux, you know, what sort of ideas come from people and where Crux goes in the future. It's uh, yeah, it seems like a really interesting idea and yeah, I'm really thankful to you you and uh, everyone else on the Crux team for creating it. Yeah, I mean, if yeah, just if anybody listening to the podcast wants to get involved more deeply, we do have an advisory board and, and you know, if you can particularly, if you've got an expertise in bi-temporality or in a Kafka or, or, or any kind of areas that um, could you feel that you could help steer this you know we do have an advisory panel that we we meet on on a regular basis and we'd be uh, very interested in and in, do send us an email at crux at jocks.pro for details of of that yeah well, we're really happy to chat to anyone so yeah please yeah get in touch i i guess i'd just also say yeah the, the docs are continuing updated so um check back often and uh if you're still scratching your head about what what by temporality really means uh, there's a whole whole list of good use cases uh sort of across different industries and things in the docs. So uh, it's a real important concept in, in many places, um, even if uh, you, you don't have the immediate need. Great. Well, thanks for talking with me. And yeah, I will be watching closely. Cool. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you.